It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason and House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and I really do appreciate joining me. We're going to have a good discussion in studio today. I happen to be in New York uh, while recording this, and we're going to have Tudor Dixon's going to come join us. She was the uh, candidate, uh, Republican candidate for governor in Michigan. You see her a lot on Fox News, a lot on Hannity and whatnot, but uh, she's a great personality. I've never spent any time with her in person and uh, really looking forward to And I think we'll have a good, vibrant discussion, and um, we're going to talk through some thoughts on the news, highlight the stupid, because you know there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And then, of course, we'll talk to Tudor, and uh, I appreciate you joining us. I think uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this. So I want to kick things off by talking about some of the things in the news. One of the things that the Democrats keep doing that just drives me crazy, drives me nuts, that is so um, intellectually impure that is, they continue to say on a regular basis, there is no evidence of any wrongdoing by Joe Biden as vice president or president in his dealings with his family and their businesses. And the reason I say that is because there's evidently 20 some odd businesses. The only asset, the only resource, the only product that they have is Joe Biden himself. And when they say there's no evidence, Republicans continue on an increasingly increasingly frequent basis to bring out new evidence, bank records, text messages, voicemails, emails, photographs, uh, call logs, um, visits to the to the the uh, White House, visits to the um, uh, vice president's residence, photographs of those. Not to mention the 170-something-plus suspicious activity reports as is related to by the United States Treasury. Um, the millions of dollars that are flowing into the Biden's account. And then the firsthand accounts of the witness testimonies. Other than that, yeah, there's no, there's no evidence whatsoever. And the lack of intellectual curiosity. Now, I can tell you as the former chairman of the Oversight Committee, Democrats were constantly peppering me on a daily basis, bombarding me with, you got to do this on Trump. You got to do this on Trump. He has to be lying. He must be. I mean, remember all the brouhaha about his tax returns? What evidence was there that he did anything wrong with those tax returns? None. Zero. They had no evidence. They were just fishing. These were fishing expeditions. And so at the time, like one of the things the Democrats said is, oh, they're, they they were showing uh, classified information in a non-classified setting. And this was when the Japanese prime minister was visiting uh, Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And he, he, he was showing him something on a computer, and it must have been classified information in a non-classified setting. So I took the bait, and I went out there, and I looked at it. Now, this went on for weeks, untold number of headlines. Then it finally came time for the military to give me a briefing and invited the Democrats, went over to the White House in the Situation Room, literally. And I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe what what are we going to show here? 
You know what the pictures were that they were showing uh, on this computer? Not of missile sites and all these allegations. No, it was President Abe's or uh, Prime Minister Abe's father liked to golf, and they had pictures of him golfing in the United States. That's what they were discussing. They were talking about golf, and we saw those pictures. Democrats walked out of the room, nothing to say, never heard a story about it, and life continued on. But to say that there's no evidence in this Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, uh, Frank Biden, Jim Biden, Haley, uh, uh, you know, there is so much evidence out there. It would be um, just improper. It would be malpractice for the Republicans not to continue on with this inquiry as they're doing. Uh, It's just totally wrong. Next story. Uh, I want to be able to talk about the price of gasoline because as we're going into into the fall, I just want to highlight that this is a fundamental approach that is different that separates the two parties, Democrats and Republicans. We used to be energy independent. Now we're not. Joe Biden set out on a mission. The mission was to get rid of fossil fuels. He's said as much directly. He does not want the fossil fuel industry to exist. So I find it rich that he goes out there on the picket lines there in Michigan uh, to try to say, I'm with all you union workers. No, you're not. You're trying to put them out of a job. You want everything to be electric. You want to fundamentally shift the way the big three auto manufacturers do business. You don't want them to produce the product that they're producing. So don't go out on the picket line saying, oh, they should make more. And by the way, the people on the picket lines who say, we need to make more money because life's so expensive, then you need to look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden's the one through his policies, high energy prices, and everything else that's going on in massive government spending that is driving the inflation that makes it so the goods and services that you want to acquire and pay for are unaffordable. It's the Joe Biden Kamala Harris policies. That's the Democrats' policies that are driving up those prices. And now you want to make automobiles more expensive. You think you're going to sell more cars, more trucks, by making them more expensive because the labor rate's going to continue to skyrocket? That ain't going to work. One last thing I want to talk about, and I was Taylor Swift showing up at the Kansas City uh, Chiefs game. Travis Kelsey... Uh, one of the best tight ends, uh, one of the best receivers out there, the go-to for for Kansas City, uh, goes out and scores a touchdown. I looked at the numbers on what Taylor Swift was able to do for the NFL. This game happened to be on Fox. It, the, it all t- it, like 24 million viewers watched that game. Every single one of the women statistics on the viewership was off the charts because of one person. Taylor Swift. And uh, I got to tell you, our family has been big Taylor Swift fans. I don't care where you're at with their music. She does put on a good show. I've been to a Taylor Swift concert. I, you know, our daughter is definitely a Swifty. She loves Taylor Swift. The idea that she went to this game and was cheering so just, I mean, she was genuinely into it. And then she did something else. Two things I want to mention is that, that caught my attention. One is, Video of her kind of bussing her table, cleaning up afterwards. I don't know if that was fake or real, but I tell you, a lot of people commented on that. Like, oh, she and she didn't have to do that. Now, maybe it was a facade. Maybe it was all part of the shtick. 
I don't care. It's a good, good, good lesson for particularly young women who love and watch Taylor Swift in her every move to clean up the mess that she just made in this suite, even though she really didn't need to do it. But unfortunately, my prediction here is this, uh, you know, Kelsey uh, Swift romance. I don't think it's going to last very long. I think this will come and go. And next thing you know, yeah, Taylor Swift's going to be writing a song about the Kansas City Chiefs and uh, and uh, Travis Kelsey. That's just my prediction. Don't throw things at me. That's just my prediction. All right, now it's time to move on to stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. All right, I got two things I got to highlight here. Number one is Molly Hennessy Fisk of the Washington Post. She wrote a piece about how unbelievable how many guns there are in Texas. They're everywhere. People carry them in the cars. They carry them under their desks. They carry them on their hip. They have them here and there. I mean, it was such an eye-opener. But you know what? So much of Texas is a very safe place to live. Why? Because people can protect themselves if they need to. And Texas enjoys a reputation that if you met, you don't mess with Texas. So, you know, I, I just... I appreciate her being so candid, this Molly Hennessy Fisk, in writing it like she saw it. I don't necessarily agree with her angle and her take on it, but yeah, guns are pervasive, particularly out west. Places like Utah, Nevada, Idaho, uh, Montana, Wyoming. I mean, a lot of places. And you know what? If you're a law-abiding citizen, you have the fundamental constitutional right to be able to carry a weapon and protect yourself. End of story. That is the Second Amendment. And it's sh- it's so funny to me how some of these East Coast liberals come out and they're shocked that people are exercising their Second Amendment rights. Second thing I want to highlight here for bringing on the stupid is Representative Ayanna Presley. She's the Democrat from Massachusetts. She went on with Jake Tapper on CNN um, and she said, no doubt about it, our border is secure. That was a quote. And anybody who thinks that the border is secure at this point is flat out stupid. It is not secure. They are flowing over the border. They have by the millions. It is open. It is porous. The Biden-Harris administration is tacitly inviting people here. They are fundamentally opening the doors, encouraging them to come here, saying they aren't going to deport them. In fact, they're going to give them housing, health care, education, They are part of the problem. They are engaged in human trafficking, drug trafficking, and what is happening at the border is not going to go away, especially if you have somebody in Congress as stupid in her policy position as Representative Presley. There is no way, no metric, no common sense that would lead anybody at this point to say, no doubt about it, our border is secure. That's just flat out stupid. All right, time to bring on Tudor Dixon. So I am so glad you came to join me in person. Tudor <laughs> Dixon is in the house. I am. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, it's always funny how like you find yourself just sitting and having conversation. We we come from different backgrounds, different parts of the world, and yet here we are together. And you know, you you did some. Uh, you decided to throw your hat in the ring and be a you know, jump into politics. But I want to go 
in the Wayback Machine. I want to go not too far back, not as far back as I go. Um, but tell us about growing up, who you are. Okay. And uh, just want to learn and have a good discussion about well, my, you. Well, if I go in the Wayback Machine, so I yeah. actually was born in Pennsylvania because my dad is a steel guy. So oh. that's my background is steel. So I, my dad, we ended up moving to the Chicago area. I grew up in the Chicago area. And then in, when I graduated from college, I came back to Chicago. My wait, dad, wait, we skipped way ahead. Let's go. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> we just made this quantum leap to college. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Okay. So you grew up, you're, do you have brothers, sisters? I have a sister. Yes. So I have an older sister. And she now has an only child, which I tell her all the time is very offensive because I assume she did not like having a little sister. So she felt that she should have an only child. But um, we are very close. So she actually, interestingly, she lives in Florida, but in the summertime, she lives in the house right next door to me, which is weird. But it's oh, true. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Yeah, so we're kind of, we always joke that we're kind of like Amish because my mom lives on my street in the summer and like through Christmas and then down like a few streets over from my sister in the winter. So we are a very close family. So what, how long, how old were you when you moved from Pennsylvania? So I was five when we moved and... Uh, it was funny because, you know, my mom had always lived, My both my parents grew up in Pennsylvania, so they were Western Pennsylvania kids, and she acted like she was, she had just been robbed of her lifestyle by having to live in the Chicago area, right? So we- That's, but, a, that's a big difference, Western Pennsylvania. It I is. Mean, my dad um, grew up in Philly, in Germantown, but then he went to Penn State. So, you know, Penn State, just a little different atmosphere, and then- she, my mom actually, she really did grow up in, in Amish country. So it yeah. was really different to come to the suburbs of Chicago. And you know, that was a long time ago. So the suburbs weren't as, I mean, now I go back, I lived in Naperville. I go back and it is not anything like what I grew up in. And everything, it's so built up. There's stores everywhere. Right. It's just, you, you really can't go home. But it was a great place to grow up. I, I mean, I grew up but in a really- But your dad was a steel guy. Yes. So my dad was a steel guy. And so when why we, go to Chicago? Because there were a bunch of steel factories there. So oh. he, you know, Gary is a big steel right. area, Gary, Indiana. So we, he was a foundry guy. So he ended up running the, this company and they had foundries all over the world. And when I was a kid, boys did not want to date us because they had heard that my dad melted down boyfriends, which I, I mean, he was terrifying. Good reputation to have as a dad. He was a terrifying, there was one time when he did, it was so embarrassing these boys came over and he heard them. You know how a dad is. He was the best dad. He heard them spitting in our hair. He was upstairs with the window open and he came downstairs. I'll never forget the embarrassment. He was like, girls go inside. And I had never seen him look like that. It was this look that I can't describe, but it was, I'm going to protect my daughters. And that was the moment boys never came to our house again. I don't really know what he said to them, but it was bad enough. Wait, wait, why were they spitting in your hair? I don't even remember. That's the thing. It's like, I don't As know. As a dad, like this is like, he's like my hero. Yes, that's what, I mean, now I look back on it. At the time, I thought, I'll never forgive you. But now I look <laughs> back on it and I think, what a sweet dad that he was so horrified. It's like this, uh, this rage came over him and he would just threaten these boys, which probably today he wouldn't be allowed to do. But it was the <laughs> right, end. Right, boys right. never came back. There was, And then this rumor started like her dad is in the mafia and he can <laughs> just melt people in the furnaces. 
And cause love he, this they, guy. I, I should know. do a podcast with him. He, how to be a dad? We we lost him a year ago, but Aww, he sorry about that. Was uh, he was my biggest champion? I mean, that's the only way I could run to for office because. He was sick when I was like, I think I'm going to run for office. My mom's like, you can't do this right now because your dad is sick. And my dad right. was like, oh, no, you're doing this. He was just so amazing. And he watched me all through. And just before that, we lost him just before the primary. But he was amazing. They were a great couple. It sounds like good parents. Very good they care parents, about their yes. kids. And yes. that's a good thing. It would be worse if they're like, I don't care. Kids skip Spitting in my daughter's hair, I don't care. <laughs> to okay, the point so where they were embarrassing, but yes, <laughs> they were great. You know, it's funny because my wife and I, we have three kids. I now have four grandkids. Oh my gosh, and what? You I not had look the like greatest joy embarrassing my kids. <laughs> like, I used to have a Vespa, I'm gonna admit it, I used to have a Vespa. My kids loved riding on that thing, they would beg me to get on the back of it. And then there came that point where they turned the corner. I'd say, all right, you want me to take you to school? Yes, but I want you to stop right here, like yeah, not right. all the way to the school because they wanted to walk the last couple hundred yards. They didn't want to see. And then every once in a while, oh, even when they got older, I would show up and say, come on. And they'd be like, no, I'm not getting on that. Yeah. It put the biggest smile on my face. I know. I know. My girls now, I, I my oldest is 14, so... Feel like we're just at that point where she's going to start hating me, and I say to her, "I'm like, there's going to be this point where you're not going to." We're going to change for a little while. Yes, I know, I know it's coming, but she still will come out of high school and walk up and put her arms around me and oh, be like, "Mom, sweet. I love you." And I'm like, people can see this, and she still wants to be seen with me. I'm like, see, yeah. our youngest daughter, she did that with my wife. Never stopped. Oh, just I'm like, really hoping it will break my heart. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I, know I was it's kind a of the of one who said, "No, we're not doing that." Or yet, I like. I had to bring the heat. My wife was, you can always get things done with honey. And I'm like, okay, this is why it's important to grow up in a household that has, you know, There are times when you parents. can't get things yes. done with honey. Yeah, I know. I have, my middle daughter is, she is the one that will always procrastinate everything I say. I'm like, go clean your room. She's like, I'm going to. I can see in your eyes you're not going to. Like I And, and I'm terrible because I... I'm definitely not, I am, I think I'm the disciplinarian parent, but I'm not as, as not as scary as my mom. My mom, she would, my parents are amazing, but she was definitely the scary parent. She would be, she will be so mad when she hears me say this. She will be like, why do you say that? But you know, you have one that's the punisher and one that's like the nice parent. She was the punisher. She's also nice. That's not to say she wasn't nice. (laughs) Good job, mom. I'm I'm patting you on the back if you were here. All right. So growing up, did you play sports? Were you a geek? Were you like? I was. Um, so I was on the gymnastics team and oh. the diving team at school. You're pretty athletic if you're doing those. Two. Those are not easy sports. Those No, those were fun. I mean, that was exciting stuff. And I was not. My mom and dad would always joke. I did softball when I was really young. And they were like, you were the kid out there picking flowers in the field and never paying attention. Wasn't so dynamic do, enough. No. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm just waiting. What's going to happen? So on the swim team, were you a diver? Were diver. You, yeah. 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 Wow. That's scary sport. It yeah. is. It is. Now I don't think, I mean, now I go to the pool and I think, I don't know how I did that. But one time when I was, when the kids were babies, you know. I did a somersault, and then a few days later, my sister just happened to call me. Her daughter is the same age as my oldest, and she was like, whatever you do, don't do a somersault <laughs> as an adult. I'm like, oh, made that mistake. Your body changes. Yeah. 
it's not and it, every there were things that were pulled muscles that were pulled uh. that I didn't know existed. I'm like, oh gosh, do not do a somersault as an adult. Okay, so you were playing sports. What was high school like for you? You know, I was because I had a friend, by the way, he's still a good friend, and I've said this before in this podcast. What we said to this guy, Mike, uh, Mike, what was your? We were kind of going around the horn. You know, what was life's most embarrassing moment? And his answer, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like eighth through 12th grade. <laughs> that was his most embarrassing moment. Pretty much that whole high school, you I know, I mean, high school, school is awkward and horrible. I don't remember it being horrible, though, because I think I'm kind of just one of those people that always has gone with the flow. And yeah. my daughter, like I said, she started high school this year. So the first day she came out and she, I said, how was it? And she looked at me and she said, Mom, I hated it. And I was like, I want to tell you that it's going to get better, but it's high school, you know? It's just, yeah, may not. You know, you go, you look back at that time of your life and there's so much of you that is formed as a person, how you care about yeah. people. I remember in high school, we lost a friend. He was hit by a car and mm. that was, I think it really shaped how I just saw life differently, you know, in yeah. that moment, because as a kid, life is never ending, right? And then you lose yeah. someone who's 15 years old and it's like, you're jolted into this place of how yeah. I have so many questions. How can a young person die? How yeah. can he just like, how does that happen? And I think that was a moment where a few key things happened that happened. And this empathy came in and I was like, okay, I've got to care about his mom. I got to take care of his mom. I've got to take care of his sister. Yeah. And that kind of created that, that sense in me that other people have these tragedies happen and they need folks to come around them. Um, when I was in high school, we had this class, this sociology class, where they would never do this today. But we traded a day with a kid at an inner city school in Chicago. So this was pretty bold. I went with her for the day and shadowed her, and she came to Naperville for the day and shadowed me. And and so I went into the school, and there's metal detectors and everything, and it was just so different. And I think right. this has really been my passion on we can't let kids go into these schools that are not educating them. And it's not the teachers. Really, it's the whole system is broken and there's so many different factors. But I saw a school where the teacher said, you guys are not going to cheat on this test. We're going to have a test. Everybody has to stay in their seats. And the teacher sat back and put his head down and the kids put all their desks together and they just talked. And it was just a different, it just was a different culture. And, and wow. I was shot and I was 16, you know, and then she came to our school and she was like, I don't get this. I mean, like everybody sits and it's so hard and it's different, but she was smart, serious, like one of those people that you just spend time with and you're like, wow, this girl's going places. And I said to her, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'll never forget her answer. Looking at me, she said, I don't expect to grow up. Not a single kid in my kindergarten class is still alive. We get shot on the way home from school. And that has stuck with me my entire life yeah. because I'm like, how do we accept that? Yeah. How do we accept that that is, oh, that's just a fact. It's a, it was a fact for her, you know? She didn't even question it. There should be no kid who f who's growing up trying to find themselves and their, f their future who's just, I mean, you hear stories about it, you know? But then when you actually live it, go and breathe it and see it, I, there's so many people that we're losing that we should not lose and should not ever acquiesce to the lowest common denominator and just, you know, it, it, and you feel for these teachers, right? That's right. To do I mean, stuff. 
we talk about crime today and how terrible crime is, but this was 30 years ago. And this was a, a right. young person. A whole generation of. And at that point, you know, my only experience with death was losing someone in a tragic situation. Right. This girl's experience was to lose someone all the time. And I, and I remember mm. feeling like, man, I just went through this and I couldn't not handle it. And it was so tragic to me, but she deals with it all the time. You know, she's lost so many friends. I mean, how do we accept that as a society? And why aren't we doing more about it? Because I don't think we know how to do more about it. In many cases, like, we're like, well, that's not my community. If it's not your community, it's easy to not think about it, to push it out of your mind. Out of sight, out of mind, out of, yeah. Okay, so you're going through high school, and then there comes that point where you got, you know, clock's ticking. Now you're getting to be a senior what did you want to do? What did you, or what happened? What, like, where did you go from there? That I was really like, I have no idea. You know, I just, <laughs> I'm going to college. I yeah. guess I'll go to college. And I had my room assignment at Iowa. Everybody. So in, wait, you, you got choices. You did, did you, yeah. were you a good student, bad student? I was a good student. So I, I, I probably an average student. I mean, I was not somebody, my sister was the kid that killed herself and stayed up all night long and studied. She'd pull all nighters. And I'm like, I got to sleep. Like, this is not me. You know, I'll get to be. Um, so you went to Iowa? No, that's the thing. I had my room assignment, Iowa, my school split kind of two ways, university of Illinois, university of Iowa. So the average kids went to Iowa and I was in that category. So um, I had my room assignment, and then, but I had applied to all these schools. What does my that sister, mean, room assignment? I don't like even I know was what ready to go. I already had my, I had my roommate. We were, I was, we had put down the, the whatever first payment. Like I'm in Iowa, right? Oh, okay. So I'm going, and then I went on spring break, and I met these boys. Where'd you go? And to Destin. And my parents were like, stop talking to those boys. I'm like, oh, I really want to. They were, they lived in Danville, Kentucky. And I said, and I had applied to Kentucky and I just gotten my acceptance letter to Kentucky. And I said, oh, we should go see it just to go see it. I really just wanted to see the boys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it was one of the, and everybody says you have that moment where you'll walk on the campus and you'll just know. And I was like, you know, that didn't happen at Iowa, but it did. I went to Kentucky and I walked on the campus and I was like. I have to go here. But part of it, this is so stupid. Part of my reason was I really wanted to have a choice in food services. And they had the, these great food services. The, I mean, honestly, clearly hey, I was very gotta concerned. There's got to be something. Yes. I was not the person who was like, law school's for me. You know, I was concerned about what I was eating there. So I ended up going to Kentucky. My sister went to Vanderbilt. So that's why I applied to Kentucky because I thought, you know, I might want to eventually yeah. see her. And I never did. Um, but I loved Kentucky. It was great. It was That's a, a great school, school. great yeah. reputation. Mm-hmm. And not too far from home. So No, it was about seven hours. So it was a good enough distance that I did drive didn't... for a long weekend. And yeah. Yes. My helicopter parents couldn't just fly in at any moment. Yeah. That's they good. They had to it's actually plan enough it. distance, but exactly. still, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you're going to Kentucky and then what happened? So then, uh, interestingly enough, so I, I was I was a psychology major, and for some reason, I worked at the local Fox affiliate. So I'm not kidding. That was my internship for like three years of school. I just worked wow. at the local Fox 17. And then when I, I graduated a semester early, so I decided that I would apply to like David Letterman show for in all these different places for an internship, right? So then I didn't hear back. And I went to my, my sister was graduating from law school. I went to my sister's graduation and I got a call saying, so that I was doing it for a second semester, but second semester's over now. And 
I got a call saying, this is the Rosie O'Donnell show. Well, we'd like you to come out and interview for an internship. And I was like, wow. And they had probably, I think they had thousands of people that applied. And then they only interviewed 25 people. And then they only gave seven people internships. So I came out here and I interviewed and I got the internship. So then I had a summer that I had nothing to do with. So I went, it's so funny because this is not what I ended up doing in life. But I I said, oh, I'll take a summer semester in London. So I went and studied at King's College and I studied media. So I went to the BBC and CNN and everything in London. And then I came back and I worked on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And um, what they have you doing? Oh gosh. So this, this is like before the internet, right? So I don't know if you remember, she used to give people like their first, be like their first action hero figure or something like that. She would get something from their very first movie. Oh, yeah. And she would and, can't say I ever saw the Rosie O'Donnell show. So <laughs> well, I, I will trust I you on this plenty. one. Plenty. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, when she would have a guest, they would she would give them a gift, and it was always something shocking, like how did how could you possibly find this? So I would have to locate that gift, and oh, that's that's tougher than it sounds, yeah, because there's no internet. Well, that's true. So I would have to call these antique stores in New York and then travel on the subway all through. Go find a Stretch Armstrong. Exactly. Yes, Yes. exactly. And then I would bring it back. No eBay to lean on. Yeah. (laughs) Now that job's got to be easy, right? Right. So the funny thing about the show was apparently she had had an intern that had been kind of wacky with her. So they were like, you know, we kind of want to give Rosie space, but you're around her all the time. And so I was. So sorry. I was, and I was one of those people that was like a rule follower, right? So they're like, you can't just don't talk, don't engage with her, don't talk. But I got really close to her bodyguards. They were very nice. So some days you would be at the front desk, right? So she left one day and I said, bye, have a good day to the bodyguard. And she turned around and looked at me and I was like, not you. And then I'm like, oh my gosh. And I was like, no, that's not what I meant. Not, not you. You should have a good day. And I could tell in her mind, she's like, this girl's insane. And she just kind of, she just kind of like, okay, blew it off and walked away. Um, but it was a great, I have to say it was a great environment. I will say that from the behind the scenes, you heard a lot of things that, you know, a lot of sad stories. There's always people out there that will do horrible things. And she got a lot of attacks from people who I would say were claiming to be, uh, I'm such a good Christian that I don't think you should raise children or be able to adopt children. And there was a lot of hate that was thrown her way. So I'm not defending any of the things that she's right. done since. But I do think that when you get fame quickly and people pick you apart, it can be hard. Yeah. So it was interesting to see okay, that. So you, you go and do this internship. And then you go back to the University of Kentucky. No, you done no, with I'm done. I'm graduated. So now, yeah. I mean, so then I'm just waiting for my saying, husband hey, to graduate. Sweeter, we're can- we're boyfriend and girlfriend at this point. But okay. he, I was on the three and a half year plan, and he was on the I'm never graduating. Yeah. So I'm dragging. Was he him at the University of, of Kentucky yes. as well? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he you was met there. Yes. Yes, we did. So. Um, then I then Oxygen Television Network launched. Do you remember that? I do remember in Oxygen. 2000. I can't name a single show, but I remember there was a... So there was isn't the, that like Oprah? Yes, yes. <laughs> so there was a show called Trackers, and it was kind of... Uh, <laughs> Sounds creepy already. I know, but it wasn't. It was these young kids, and it was a talk show for young kids, but they got really good guests. Like They had Snoop Dogg, and 
There were, it was, that was an interesting day because they had a green room with just curtains. And I don't know if you know his reputation, but there was a lot of smoke. So they yeah, were I've trying to figure out how to work the cameras around the How to get the ventilation students working. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that was exciting. And then finally Aaron graduated. And so I came back to Illinois and I was working in PR in Illinois and um, he was working with my dad. My dad was in the steel industry, and then my dad decided to leave his company and buy a foundry in Michigan. And he said, come and work with me. And I'm like, oh, gosh, that sounds awful, working with your family, and I don't know anything about manufacturing. And he, my dad was like the ultimate salesman, right? So he convinced me. We moved to Michigan, and and working with him— the west side of Michigan. So it right in it's a little town called Muskegon, Michigan, right across from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, right on the lake, right on Lake Michigan. Um so the the foundry was actually right on a lake that fed into Lake Michigan. And it was the best ten years of my life working with him. And wow. and just really learning I remember when I was first graduated from college, sitting down with one of the guys that worked with him and his son was there too. We're the same age. His son was going to be a financial advisor. And I remember his dad looking at him and going, what 20 year old kid do I want coming in and telling me what to do with my money? He's like, until you two have decided to make something, you will never know what real work is. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy's a real crab. And then we, I went and worked with my dad and, and you make things and you see them in real life. And you right. see, like we made these brackets that went on Kenworth and Peterbilt trucks. So every time SMI would go by, I would see our bracket. I know we made that, you know, I'm like, right. we contributed. You contribute to the things that have to move in this world, right. whether it's agriculture or mining or transportation, you're there, you're a part of it. So that's exciting. You're listening to Jason in the house. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Tudor Dixon right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Okay, so you do that for 10 years. Mm -hmm. At what point do you say, hey, husband, dear, uh, I think I should get into politics. (laughs) When did it that takes happen? A little a while. So then you have four kids. Um, I stayed home when I had the kids, and then I um, and then I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So when the twins were two, I <laughs> I went into my doctor just for my regular appointment, and my PA yeah. was doing my breast exam, and she said, um, well, "How long have you had this lump?" And I was like, "I don't know what you're talking about." And this is. I think for women, you know, you're told to do a breast exam and you're told to be aware, but I, this is not what I would have thought cancer felt like. I just think it's so hard to really know. I mean, there was a lump there, but I just didn't know that was what it would feel like. And so she said, I think we're going to send you in for a mammogram. Wow. And yeah, so that was one of those How moments. How old were you? Can I ask? 38. 38. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my twins were two. My middle daughter was four. My oldest was six. And you hear those words and you're like, okay, so my oldest might remember me because you're thinking, what am I going to face? You know, what is this? And um, I think going through that and then coming out of that, then I went back to work after that, after um, because I had surgery and they said, we got everything. You should be good. We'll put you on medication. Um, So then I went back to work after that and I went back to work for a, a steel so my dad was a little well, upset because it was a... I know you're kind of going over that 
and I don't want to go too deep or no, too no, personal, no. Yeah. but yeah, I, look, I lost my mom to breast cancer and she mm-hmm. was diagnosed when she was like, if she wasn't 38, she was like 39. And, you know, I, I've said many times, I only wish they had the type of diagnostics and medicine and everything, because I think she'd still be with us. But she passed away in 1995. And for me, it's like, I can't believe how long ago that was now. I know. Doesn't you know? that seem shocking? And But a credit to the medicine and the doctors and the research that I think most people... I hope at least who get diagnosed, they think, oh yeah, I am going to live. I I can tackle this. My my wife, Julie, who I I hope you get a chance to meet, you know, she for years worked with a a doctor who did breast reconstruction and did plastic surgery. And he had the good presence of mind of saying, look, I'm a male and I'm I need a female, my wife also graduated with the degree in psychology, mm. to say, look, this is how, you, this is what's going to happen. This is the process. I can help you with everything from, you know, finding the right bra and your hair. You know, a lot of people lose all their hair. Yeah. And, and so I don't want to get too personal, too depth with that, but I am very familiar with that and how scary it is for the husband, how scary it is for the kids. Right. But... Well, I, I mean, look I around today and I see, my... like, I would never guess that. Well, I can about walk you, you through my journey, like, because I think that a lot of women, I think a lot of people get that diagnosis and, and they immediately run to the first doctor and they just go with what that first doctor said. Right. And I mean, this is pretty intimate details, but women go through this. So I went to Grand Rapids and I remember the doctor was like, okay, we're going to do surgery on Tuesday. And we'll just do a double mastectomy and then you can do reconstruction some other time. And I was like, man, I don't know about this. Like this feels like there's a better option. Things seem more advanced than this now. So I started doing research and I decided I'm going to go to MD Anderson. So I went there, top cancer hospital in the country. And my family members like, no, you got to do this now. And I I was like, no, I want to do this right. You know, so I went to MD Anderson and... You know, I liked the doctor there. She actually, she said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do a lumpectomy? Do you want to do a mastectomy? And she did a more extensive biopsy and she said, well, we see precancerous cells all over. So I say, you have to do the one, you decide on the second one. Do you want to just go and do it all now? And went through all the different options of it'll look different if you have one that's natural and one that's, you know, fake. And I mean, so we decided and she said, I'll never forget this. She said, I mean, in 20 years, you'll probably be back here with cancer in the other breast, but you'll have 20 years with it. And I was like, mom, my girls will be like getting married. You know, I don't, I don't want to go through that. So, but there was a coldness there. And so I said, my parents freaked out about this. I'm like, I think I'm going to go to Johns Hopkins and get another opinion. They're like, you just have to get this done. And the riots were going on in Baltimore and that freaked them out. But I'm like, I'm going to the hospital. So this was pretty incredible though, because I sat down with these doctors, same two men, the breast surgeon and the plastic surgeon. And the plastic surgeon said to me, hey, I want you to be able to feel like you're still a woman. And so when we're done with this, I'm going to do a surgery that you're going to be able to wear a bikini if you want to. And that was meaningful. You know, it sounds silly, but it was meaningful. No, it doesn't sound silly at all. Yeah. So we went through and 
three years later, the breast surgeon called me. And you think about how many people go through the doors of Johns Hopkins every day with breast cancer. He called me three years later. He said, hey, I I have a question for you. I've got a woman who's 35. Same story as you. She's really scared. She doesn't speak English incredibly well. Would you talk her through it? Think about that. This guy remembered me from three years before and gave me the privilege of sharing my story with someone else. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was amazing. Because there is the whole psychology of it. There is the whole, I got to live a life and I got a husband, I got daughters, I got, you know. And there's so many different options too, especially I think with daughters, I was like, well, what are you going to do to me? You know, you're going to cut off my breasts and my girls are going to grow up wondering what that looks like in real life, you know? And, and so I wanted to have those intimate conversations about how do I explain this to my kids and what will they see and how much can we save and what can we, what, how normal can I still be? And so there are all kinds of options. You know, you can have a mastectomy that cuts off your nipples. You can have one that's nipple sparing. I mean, and these are all things that are very hard that you actually have to think about when you're going through this. Yeah. And you have that opportunity to have that discussion. And women have called me since that have gone through this and like, well, I've been told that I have to just go and have it cut off and then they can tattoo your nipples back on. And I'm like, talk to someone else, just see, because yeah. There are that's, options. I know that's very... And they didn't used to be here. It's probably more yeah, than you wanted to know. No, I... I think it's so important. I mean, I certainly didn't start this little conversation with you thinking we were going to talk anything about this. So, um, but you know, that's, that's why I like doing this podcast because you just kind of get to know somebody and have a, and you know, we did a podcast with Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who is one of the more talented radiologists, you know, that Mm -hmm. there is, and she knows how to, and every day, she has to tell people what the results of these mammograms are. And I don't know how she does it emotionally. Like that is really got to take your toll over a a lot of, but statistically it is a stunning number of people that are going to get cancer. And you know, if it's not cancer, it can be some something else, but it is uh, stunningly pervasive Mm -hmm. and it touched my family and it's obviously touched your family and, and it's a reality of what's happening. And I hope people have that hope and that understanding that there are options and that the medicine of today compared right. to 10 That's years what, ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's just, it just incrementally is getting better and better. And talk to, it's talk not the to death sentence doctors. that it used to be. Right. right. And if you hear something you don't like, this is, you are your own best health advocate. And yeah, that's what I tell yourself. people all the time. I'm like, don't feel like, I think we know we know so little about medicine if we're not doctors that we just okay this is what the doctor said I have to go with it. Yeah. But sometimes you have to ask another doctor and you get to hear something different. Well, you're inspirational for a lot of people. I've never heard that about you. Maybe I didn't do enough diving deep, but that that's good. Um and and especially for your kids. I mean, I think that's life lesson for them as well. Yeah. So, okay, you're going through that hardship you're in Michigan and you're working with your dad, but at some point, where is it? Where on the spectrum did you like finally wake up and roll over and whatever and say, honey, dear, I've been thinking politics is what I should do. It'd be really good for our family. I was that mom who sent my kids to public school and felt like that their job was to teach them and never questioned anything that would happen in public school because I was like, again, 
like with the doctor, I'm not the expert. I'm not a teacher. The teacher mm-hmm. is the expert. So I'm going to, tr- I'm just going to trust, blindly trust. And a friend asked me to come and work with him, leave manufacturing, start a program for middle and high school students. It was like a daily news update, sort of like a CNN 10. And I, so I took this leap and stepped out and he had been in education reform for years and was like, oh, you know, talking to me about all this school stuff. And I thought, man, I never thought about it. And still, I think this is the struggle to get people to understand choice. Choice is really up to you. And we're not saying you should leave public school. And I would never say that. I'm a public school kid. And my kids got a great education in public school when they were there. But when COVID hit, we moved them because the public school shut down. And I didn't know if they would open back up. And so I moved my kids to private school. And for them, what part of the reason we moved them was my oldest moved from elementary to middle school and she struggled and she wanted to move school. So we wanted a smaller school for her. And I just saw that choice, how it impacted their life. And it wasn't that I was angry with my public school. It was just an amazing change for them. The culture that were Christians, they went to Christian school. They started reading the Bible every day, the way it impacted the way they thought of prayer and all these things and their hope. And it was funny this year because we lost a kid at our school um, unexpectedly from a medical issue. And the one one of the girls was overheard or overheard the parents saying, we just can't believe she's gone. And it struck me because the mom said, she looked at me and she said, mom, I don't understand. All the parents keep asking, like, how could this happen? I don't understand why she's gone, but she's not gone. I know exactly where she is. Mm. She's with Jesus. And I was like, wow, that's something that I can't even do. You know, like, oh my goodness, this childlike faith that they got in that choice that we made has changed our lives, but that's not available to everybody. And so when COVID hit and we started to see the shutdown of all my manufacturing friends, the kids that were left out of school, my daughter at one point looked at me and she was like, she was 10, my oldest was 10. And I kind of forget because I wasn't locked in the house. You know, as one person, I could go to the grocery store. I could, you were, one person was allowed to go places. Michigan was pretty bad, but one person could go places, but they couldn't leave for months. They couldn't even go in the yard for months. And she said to me, I think this is what depression feels like. And I remember being, thinking, no, mm -mm, we can't do this. So we actually started talking to people about who's going to run. Michigan does not have a deep bench. So who's going to run? And they were like, man, it would be great if we could find a woman with manufacturing experience, but that's like a unicorn. And the guy that I was working with, he's like, why don't you do it? And I'm like, I'm no, that's a lot. And then we started talking. He said, just let's talk to a few people. So we started talking, people researching it. And I came home and I said, so I'm thinking of maybe running for governor. And I think at this point, Aaron knows me so well that he just kind of looks at me. He's like, so you're running for governor now. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll do this. And we did. I mean, it was just kind of like morphed from there. I mean, we talked to the girls, we talked to a lot of friends, talked to a lot of consultants just about what the process would be. And it's so funny because they're like, well, you really won't know until you do it. But they laid it out pretty well. It's yeah. just that I understand now. And if somebody were to relay that out for me, I would go, yes, that's what I lived. But before you actually live it, doesn't matter how yeah, well it's laid it's, out. Yeah. You have no idea what it's you're walking still, into. Until you're 
bouncing from city to city, town to town, audience to audience. Yeah. And the crazy stuff that gets thrown at you that you weren't yeah. you know, like, wait, what? Oh, I and what? the things that, yes. No, I didn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm, I've done all kinds of things. I had no idea I ever Dialing did. Dialing to raise money and... Yeah. Did you know Betsy DeVos beforehand? No, no. So, and that was the funny thing. I come into this and I mean, I am the most unlikely person because I don't know, all, I don't even know that you have to know all I mean, these not people. Not only is she a prominent Michigander, right? She is, you know, the sec, former secretary of education, yes. pretty influential yes. there in the state of Michigan. And she was, she she came to your aid, as best yes. I recall, not just your aid, but was really an advocate for you. She did. And, and you know, even... They were even gracious and they worked with President Trump, even though there had been like maybe potentially some sort of a rift right. there. But they uh, they came together and they both endorsed. And I mean, it was kind of a miracle what happened yeah. because I you came out of nowhere. Really well, now you didn't win. Right. But I think you exceeded a lot of people's expectations. You know, we received more votes than any Republican gubernatorial candidate has ever received. Well. So that to me is amazing. And I really, I think it's a message to people across the country because there's been a lot of discussion of the 2020 election. And I think we saw that if you go back in the numbers in Michigan, yeah. you go from 2014 to 2018, the Democrats get 800,000 more votes. But you know what? They were out there registering people. Yeah. They saw 2016 and they went into action. It was a big difference. They went into action. And what I mean by that is they brought in groups to to push people out, to push people to the yeah, polls. Their to get... leverage of unions and teachers unions and not-for-profits, it's a stunning, and it doesn't stop. It's mm -mm. perpetual. And like Republicans, Republicans tend to show up on election year, maybe. That. Yes, but we're underestimating the power of that ground game that they have. Yeah. And I think that, interestingly, 2020 distracted from people realizing that there is a true ground game that they have that we don't have. Yeah. And if we don't get into that, we are going to continue to go, man, that's a terrible situation. We lost that election. We didn't lose. Well, we are. Because, I mean, I've seen us lose because we're not talking to enough people. We're not getting. Yeah. We have hunters in Michigan that would absolutely be yeah. pro-Republican policies, and they're not registered to vote. I know. There's a group that I used to be associated with, and I'm not now, called Hunter Nation. And their whole premise was the idea that if hunters would get together mm -hmm. and, you know, express a voice, they're just, they're not even registered to vote, let alone yeah. voting on the, the issue that hunt. they love. <laughs> they know about permits, right? Mm -hmm. They know how to go right. out. And they, they're paying attention to the calendar. Add this, because if they want to be able to hunt, I mean, look at what the Biden administration is trying to do with hunting and fishing and everything else and limiting their access. Democrats are really not good on this issue. It used to not be a as much of a political football, so to speak, but now it is. Yeah. Well, they've, just, they've been masterful at picking one topic to create that Republican's life around. So, I mean, for our race, really, if you look at yeah. our race, people will say, oh, you lost because of abortion. But if you pick, if you peel that back, we didn't lose because we talked about abortion because that was not my platform. We lost because she created this persona that I was, that I, I think they created a term for me called a forced birther. That was literally our ads were running like that. And they played these ads on people's cell phones every time you yeah, streamed video. Per perpetual. But it wasn't my message, but people thought it was my message. We're not doing that. 
I, if you look at Michigan, we didn't go after the Democrats at all. And that's what I keep telling Republicans. Play their game. Play offense. Define them. Pick yeah. the thing that they do that everybody's going to hate. And just hammer them with that, you know? Yeah. Put ads out there and see how you do, because I guarantee you we're going to do a lot better. Yeah. So now that you've run, even though you'd lost, would you want to run again for <laughs> something? So I always say, maybe it's like pregnancy and you forget and then you do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it four times. I know. So, so I have know. a bad track record there. Um, you know, I that is one of the things that I'm looking at is how do we engage our side in playing the same game? And I really am behind, involved behind the scenes for 24 to see what we can do to get our state right. house back and and seats like that and play that game. I mean, I talked to, I was at the Trump event last night and I was talking, we, you know, we have so many awesome people in Michigan and they're like, help us. And it's funny to me because we as a party across the country, there are pockets where people feel like they don't have direction. And we can provide that direction. And it was just so amazing to have people come up to me and say, help lead us into the direction we need to go. So I feel like that's the place I've been given. That's the role I've been given right now. And I learned a lot through my race. And maybe what I learned was meant to be used there. And if it can change things, then I see a future where I run again. Um, I want to make sure that I have the infrastructure in place to do that. It's definitely interesting to watch. I mean, watching... Those shop, we were in a shop and it was a shop similar to one of the machine shops we would have shipped our castings to. Being in that shop and seeing all those workers, listening to what he was saying. And in Michigan, it's different than I think it is in other states because in 2016, Donald Trump came there and he talked about making sure the manufacturers didn't go to Mexico, which was on the hearts and minds of people. Right. Because if our big three, if the big three automakers leave Michigan, we're in trouble. Yeah. Last night was different. I wanted to see how will you even talk about this? Because now it's the workers who are fighting the big three, but the non-union workers are scared because they're getting laid off. And I mean, he talked, he had an interesting point of doesn't matter how much you negotiate with them, because if Biden gets his way, your jobs are gone anyway, because the EV industry is going to destroy Michigan. And I'm like, wow, we're not talking about, why are we afraid to talk about that? It's true. No, they should. I, I, when the Republican debate happened, Donald Trump wasn't on that stage. Mm-hmm. I commented. I think I, I thought most of the candidates failed to draw that connection. They got a question about Joe Biden on the picket line. What they failed to do is to clearly articulate that Joe Biden wants to put him out of business. Mm-hmm. And he does so because he doesn't want – he's – pledge to get rid of fossil fuels. He wants to right. get rid of the very lifeblood of things that they're making. So who is he kidding? You know? I saw one of the, I, I can't remember what news outlet it was. They were trying to ding Trump and the headline was Donald Trump says the strike is irrelevant, something like that. And I said, wow, they're promoting this. They didn't even get what he was saying. It was irrelevant they don't want to. because, right, they don't want to, of course, but it's irrelevant because their jobs are not going to be here. And I think if you've been where I've been and you've seen what we manufacture and the difference between a gas-powered car and electric car, you see how many of our big companies will go down. I talked to a guy on the west side of of the state. He has a company that has nearly 4,000 employees. He said, you have to understand, I've always worked with the environmental agency in Michigan. Under Whitmer, it's a different place. He said, I, I can't explain. I, it used to be scientists yeah. working with me. I said, it's activists. 
He said, that's right. And every day I think about my grandfather's pledge to stay here and my father's pledge to stay here, but we have partners in red states and there's a chance we move all our jobs. Yeah. 4,000 jobs. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Tudor Dixon right after this. It's a very real, and America better wake up to it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to an electric vehicle. I have an electric vehicle, but you know what? Um, I'm like all of the above energy, and when you purposely cut off the lifeblood of how to drive our economy, and then you say, okay, workers that are striking, life's more expensive, you need a pay raise. That was on purpose. Mm-hmm. It was because of the Biden administration's policy. All right, now we're getting into a policy podcast. Yes, yes, sorry. And we could go on and on here, yes. but you've been very generous with your time, and we've learned a lot about you, <laughs> but but you have not been through my rapid questions. Oh, yet. gosh, great. Oh, no. Okay, I'm ready, maybe. You, you ran for governor in a contentious state. These are not going to be hard questions compared to what you've already <laughs> okay. been through. So you ready? Yeah. It didn't matter if you were ready or I not. Knew. I was still going to ask I'm like, anyway. why am I yes. answering this? All right. First concert you ever attended? Oh, Lollapalooza. Really? <laughs> yes. It was like multiple concerts. Sounds I won. like you yeah. liked it. It was, I mean, it was, and I'm not a big concert goer, but it was fun. Yeah, I was evidently. I escaped from my helicopter parents for an afternoon. Sounds like fun. All right. Uh, what was your high school mascot? Oh, this is interesting. We were the Redskins. And when I was a senior, it changed to the Red Hawks because, you know, we couldn't have the Redskins. But did you see that debate of the commanders that now that group has come out and said the Redskins should be honored and the commanders were actually oppressive? And I'm like, (laughs) it's come full circle only 30 years later. I, I mean, I've always felt like you're honoring these people. You're like... I, it's nothing but positive to be right. able to be we, named. We choose them because they're great warriors. We want to be them. Yes. You know, that's our mascot. We're tough. Yes. We're persevere. We overcome obstacles. We win. It's like, what negative connotation do you think they bring by naming their team or their school after right. you? Right. All right. Uh, first celebrity crush. Oh, for sure. Leonardo DiCaprio. And I thought we would, like, I thought. We'll, Have you ever met him? No, I, you know, but the funny Would thing is, melt if he did? so not now I, because I, I think that, um, I got, I had a, a moment where I got over him, but <laughs> you know, when I watched Titanic, I was like, I have to be with Jack. It was Jack that I fell in love with, not Leonardo. Let's face Fair. it. And I'm way too old for him now. Um, but I also, this is a funny one. I also had a huge crush on Anderson Cooper, which clearly would never have worked out for multiple reasons, but I had a huge crush on him for a long time. And I was like, you know, you have that list of people. Like if I ever, that would be, and he was on my list and obviously I'm very confused by people. So, well, you might get a chance if you haven't met him before. So yes. (laughs) Um, I don't think I'm his type. Yeah. Yeah, No, (laughs) no. (laughs) There's not going to be a connection there. I get that. Uh, What was your first job? I worked at the grocery store. I was a bagger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah. like that? What'd you learn? There is nothing scarier than the garbage at the grocery store. This the smell is so because it's all like the fermented things there. You walk in that room, and I it's it's kind of like what comes out of horror movies, you know. And you walk in the mo- room, and it almost seems like the lights dim, and the garbage can starts to have teeth and growl at you. It smells so strong. I don't know. I worked at the General <laughs> Cinema Corporation, and oh. you work the garbage detail on popcorn, and it just <laughs> permeates yeah, and it goes home with you. It's like a frat house after a party oh, in the morning. So yeah, disgusting. So gross. All right. What is your, what is Tudor's um, 
superpower. Like, oh, what is gosh. it that you can do that, like, all right, I can do this better than most people? I don't know if this is a superpower, but I have this experience where um, <laughs> people will tell me the their, like, deepest, darkest secrets, but I don't know why. And I never know what to do with them. And well, you're so, a very nice person. You're easy to talk to. I don't know. When I was, and I, and I make... This will not happen to you, but I make men cry, but I don't know why. So I told my my campaign manager, I'm like, I have this thing where I'm like, I make men cry. I don't know why. And he's like, okay, well, we'll see. You know, because you have to kind of like confess right. everything before you run. Right. And then I would have men come up and tell me stories. And these were people he knew. And, he, and the one event we went to was a fundraiser. We were at yeah. a CPAC event in Dallas. And like I saw all these, everybody knows each other, right? So this guy comes up, starts telling me this long story and he's crying. And I'm like, it's okay. And I'm like patting him on the back and we walk away. And he goes, I didn't, I'm just going to say, I can't stand this anymore. I don't know why I I don't know how you deal with this. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it happens. Like, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, that's not a superpower, though. I Everybody could try hates to it. analyze that, but I'm just going to leave it right there. And I know, yeah. I know a lot. So I know everybody's dirt. It's it's in here, though. It's not coming out. <laughs> Saving it. <laughs> Save it for the podcast. Another podcast. All right. <laughs> no, it's it's locked. It. I I have to keep it in the vault. You know because they've trusted me with their innermost. Well, that's good. Yeah, so it's in the vault. That's good. You're trustworthy too. That's good. <laughs> um, did you grow up having a pet? Oh yes, I had a dog. He was a biter, so we had to like keep him away from our friends. Some kids tortured him when we were what little. What kind of dog is this? The little Cujo. Tibetan terrier. I know he's small too, but he would have these moments of getting mad, and then he would bite. So I had a dog, and then when I got a little older, I found a cat out in the yard, and my dad was like, "Don't go anywhere near that that cat." But then I was like too tempted. And I'm like, kitty, kitty, kitty. And so I fed her for weeks. And then one day she came and she had like been attacked by a raccoon. And so we took her to the vet. And then once we paid the vet bill, my mom was like, now we have this cat. But the vet was like, this cat's really old. It won't live past an another year. I was 10. That cat went to college with me. Oh, my God. This is a tough cat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You get attacked by a raccoon and put on another 10 years. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, they talk about cat lives, but that's that's impressive. Yes. Do you have Do you have pets now? I do. So we have a dog and we actually have a cat that was a, a weak moment for me. We went to get fish food at the pet store. It was cat adoption day. And I don't, I don't even want to have a cat, but this cat was like, acted like I love you so much. And I'm like, oh my gosh, where's she going to live? <laughs> so we brought her home and she's, she loves me. My pet stores are in business. People like you. Totally. Yes. I'm a marketer's dream. If I see the same food I buy every day in a different package, I'm like, it must taste different. Look how beautiful this is. It I mean, must be more nutritious I, now yes, than exactly. the new updated formula. Yes. Yes. Do you go like on Instagram and just buy whatever they no, throw in front of you? No, I don't. Thankfully, I'm not really an do. online buyer. I, but if I oh, go to the grocery store and like, you know, I know the Lucky Charms are bad for me, but now the, sh the package shimmers, I'm like, oh, how cool. But I'm going to bring I this I look home. at the label and I think, and I'm probably going to get this wrong. I don't want some cereal manufacturer to get mad at me. But the Wheaties and the Lucky Charms have about the same nutritional problem. Isn't that shocking? I know. I'm like, so why I'm have I been Lucky eating Charms. this Special K? I when like it the Lucky has the Charms. Same amount of sugar. That's right. I'm not doing Special K. 
Raisin no bran? No offense to Special K. Why would I do, do raisin bran when I, I can get those little marshmallows? That was like such Especially a joy around... because you thought you were eating fruit when you had raisin bran. Oh. But it's just like a dried piece Do you remember growing of... up, Jesse Waters made this point. He did a whole segment on this on Waters, on one of his shows, Primetime or whatever. You know, when I grew up, they were recommending like yes. 10 bowls of grains and cereals. <laughs> like 10 bowls of cereal? I can do that. Exactly. Life cereal. Then I do a hot mix and get near the bottom but and see, I mix I them all together. I still feel like I'm doing something good when I'm eating cereal, even though I know better now because it I was raised that It says it's heart healthy. Way. I know. I'm like, it I've lower done... my cholesterol, <laughs> even though it's got, you know, 19 grams Raisin of bran is the only carbs. place that I actually accept raisins. So I am a strong, like against raisins baked into food. Why do I have to have a grape that has gone bad that is squishy now? I can eat raisins by themselves. Put the raisin yes. in a cookie. No. Yes, that exactly. Yes, See? there's something wrong with You're the You're going to make me cry. <laughs> there. We're almost there. We're oh, almost I see your there. secret sauce. I understand. <laughs> You're making me cry about raisins and, okay, pineapple and pizza. This oh, is a make or break. This just happened because I literally just went to, right before this, I got pizza and I said to the guy, or I said to the girl that was with me, I think I'm going to get that one. And she was like, the pineapple one? And I said, get a hold of yourself. No, I'm not looking at the pineapple one. I'm against it. You you scared me for a second. You thought you were going there. No, mm-mm. I was saying, I didn't even think they sold pepper or uh, pineapple and pizza in New York, but no, yeah, they do. It, yeah, it was no. there. It was a close call. I mean, what if he had thought I would said that it's and then I had to buy it? And a lot of okay, wrapping up here. Uh, favorite favorite childhood toy. Oh, I so say we had this little guy that was we named him Ollie, and we wrote he was like a ride on toy. You know, my sister and I had him and. Then we loved him and we made my mom keep him for years. And then one day he was, she was like, I'm going to put him in the garage. And she slowly got rid of him. And I think it has made my sister and I both terrified to get rid of our kids' toys. We still have way too many from when they were too little. And we're like toy hoarders because, and then you, so you put that together, my mom getting rid of our favorite toy secretly and probably throwing it in the garbage, even though she told us it went to a farm or something, you know. Um, and then you add in Toy Story. I mean, give me a break. We'll never throw a toy away again. That makes total sense to me. I, uh, toy Story 3 should be outlawed. I, you can't even I get into the, the first few minutes without crying. I don't know about that. They but... go into that incinerator, hold hands. This is the end. It's <laughs> devastating. It is devastating. I did like Toy Story. I think it's very clever and the voices are so good. Uh, best advice you ever got? Well, my most recent that I can remember was going into the debate because I was scared of going into, I'd never debated before. And I'm like, I'm debating Gretchen Whitmer. She's an attorney, you know, and everybody was like, yeah, this is going to be horrible. And I'm like, oh, that's, thank you. That's your support team? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She's going to be so good. So uh, right before, literally moments before Governor Ducey called me and I said, do you have any advice for me? And he said, yes, do not think about what you're going to say. Listen to everything she says and note the, the places where she's lying and then call her out. And good advice. it was such good advice because you were in that moment and you're thinking, how am I going to answer? How am I going to answer? Right. And you stop listening. He said, yeah. don't stop listening. And so I think that's just to help me. But I think listening is just, it helps you no matter what you're doing in yeah. life. Like in sales, no matter what you're doing, we're so quick to think about what we should say. Listen, no matter what you're doing. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. When I was chairman of the oversight committee and we had freshman members and I would tell them, I say, look, 
you're lower on the dais. You're going to get the last chance to ask a question. You will have been sitting here hours, but you're in the most magical seat because if you're really smart, what you need to do is listen. Mm. Listen, mm-hmm. and then it's the second and third question or the follow-up, just like in the debate, what Governor Ducey was telling you, that is much more powerful. But yeah, interpersonal relationships, being in school, learning new skills, being on a sports team. I mean, you name it, right? Right. Um, and, and, I, and there was a lot, walking into that debate was scary because there were so many people that wanted to debate her. I mean, right. there were so many people that had so much to say to her in the state of Michigan. And I said to them before I went in, I want to be your voice. And I'm like, my prayer before I went into that was not, you know, not like, oh, let me do really well. It was, let me say the things that the people of Michigan want to say yeah. to her and want to have her answer. You do feel the weight of that. You know, so many people and they put all of your, their hopes and their dreams and their, yeah. And they're pleased, and the, and the more it happens, the longer you're there, like, wow, you really start to feel the weight of it. But that's because you care, and that's good. And that's what people are ultimately attracted to. And I hope you run yes. for another office at some point. Um, although there is that saying, friends don't let friends run for Congress. So, <laughs> so. My seat is open. Well, my seat was taken by a Democrat for the first time last year. So I definitely had a lot of people like, uh, go Talk. I will turn off the microphones and have a yeah, little right, talk right, here. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Well, my girls no, but thank you. Thanks for opening up your heart and sharing your yeah. thoughts. And I appreciate you coming on the Jason in the House podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. It was thank fun. You. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Tudor Dixon right after this. Can't thank Tudor Dixon like we do everybody for spend enough for for all this time that they give us and opening up our heart and just being a fun person. Um, She's just the kind of person that should be running for office. I hope she does run for office and do some some other good things to help our community. So what a great story and good good all-American family as far as I'm concerned. So so I wish her nothing but the best and uh, just good, happy person. And I like being around happy people. All right. Um, please subscribe to this. Rate this podcast. Really appreciate it if you could if you could rate it. And I want to encourage you to... Uh, Go over to the foxnewspodcast.com. You can find other podcasts. I want to remind people, too, they can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Jason Chaffetz. This has been Jason in the House. Thanks for joining us. Join us next week. Another good, exciting, fun guest. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.